welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. I have 40 minutes of notes and about 25 minutes, so we are going to blitz through this because I felt like there was a clear word, a clear sense as we've been charting through the Sermon on the Mount of what this message is about today. So would you bear with me? Uh, If you've been with this season, you know, well, let me say this. If you've been with us, we are today halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, which if you've been with us the whole time, hopefully that's an exciting thing. But if you're reluctant or you're ready to be done with it, I'm sorry. I think this is a masterpiece. Um, We're going to be in Matthew 6 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it. But I wanted to say that because it's really important as we begin to step into chapter six, Darren led us into it last week with almsgiving, because we have to know that in the ancient Near East, people like Matthew and other ancient writings, the structure of the way they ordered their story and their teaching, their writings, is actually really important. It actually carries a lot of the meaning and what is intended And Matthew's entire gospel is written in this thing called a chiastic structure, which basically means the middle is really important. So the ends work our way into the center. So Matthew is written that way, but also the Sermon of the Mount is written that way. And it's a sign for us to focus a little longer, to sink our teeth into this section of the Sermon on the Mount. But it's also good to know that Matthew writes the entire book like this where chapter one and chapter 26 point to one another, and that's really important for what Matthew is trying to say, because if we're not careful, readers will miss what's happening. And if you've ever tried to read Matthew one, you'll know that it's this Matthew begets section. It's this Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. It's this lineage of Jesus. But when we're not paying attention to what's happening, we miss the fact that in this list of the lineage of Jesus, God's son, the Messiah, in this amazing list of lineage, there's a whole bunch of people that we should not include. There's a whole bunch of people that if you were writing a royal lineage, you would not want to include them because of the shame that it would carry. You have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, you have Bathsheba, just to name a few. Those are four women. None of them are Jewish or they're not connected to Jewish families at very least. They're outsiders. They're not someone you'd put on in a list if you were listing God's family and yet they're included by Matthew. And not just included, they actually carry an important role in what the story of the Messiah is. So the very beginning of Matthew, he's telling us that outsiders are being let in. The very end of Matthew, the Great Commission, which we've all heard a thousand times, chapter 26 or 25 and 26, Jesus gathers all of his best friends and best students and he commissions them to go and baptize the nations in everything that he taught them. All of these insiders are sent out. So Matthew begins with outsiders being let in and ends with insiders being sent out. From the very beginning, Matthew's winking at us that this kingdom is not gonna be like another kingdom. It's not gonna be about the adornments of your status. It's not gonna be about your royal or noble birth. It's not gonna be about your noble birth. It's gonna be about your holy life. It's gonna be about the righteousness that you embody for the sake of others. So why is this idea, insiders, outsiders, so important for reading about prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is what we're reading about today? Well, what I want to say is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching on prayer, we discover that prayer is actually the language of the kingdom of God. 
It's this connective part between the first half and the second half of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the language of the kingdom of God, which means it's the language of those who were outsiders who have become insiders. Set that in there. Prayer is the language of the outsiders who have been let in to be insiders. God is for the outsiders. And that doesn't mean that prayer is a secret, that only a few can learn it, because it is available to everyone. God's presence is available to everyone. But only some, and this is what Jesus is hinting at, only some will choose to persist long enough that they become fluent in it. Fluent like a language, fluent like when a language is in your bones. You can show up wherever you're landing, right? Anywhere that speaks another language, and it just comes out of you. That's the type of presence and attention. It's about time and attention. Have we learned to soak our lives and our time in the regular presence of God to come to know the language of his presence and prayer that sets in our bones that we become fluent? So if Matthew is about making outsiders insiders and sending them out, then why, and this is, I know I'm not speaking to everyone, but this is the word I felt today, why do so many of us feel like outsiders when it comes to prayer? Feel like outsiders when it comes to God's presence. We feel disconnected. We feel like we're watching other people have wonderful experiences or tell stories about their lives of prayer, but we're feeling left out, and this is the thing. We feel like God might be withholding from us, like we've missed something important. And Jesus, at the center of this text, wants to clear the baggage and offer us a way into the heart of prayer, the heart of God's presence. So today, I'm not going to do really, here's five types of prayers. I'm going to set the table because I want you to hunger for prayer. I'm going to throw some, some grounding ideas of what prayer is about from this text. And we'll, we have plenty of tools online we can send out. We have a great Q&A that Faith led us in earlier this year that I think was really helpful for a lot of people during COVID, but I really want to set a table for you to hunger and yearn for God's presence. And we need to hear that today. So Jesus, would you come as we read and open your text, Lord, would your word, would it make us salivate, would it make us hungry for your wisdom and your nearness? Would Would we grow discontent with anything else other than you, Lord? Would you give us new eyes to see and ears to hear this text, this familiar text, with fresh ears, God? And however you want to correct and bless and invite us today, Lord, would you do it? In your name, amen. So would you turn to Matthew 6, if you haven't already. I'm going to just read it in one fell swoop, and then all I'm going to do is just chunk by chunk, go through text, little snippets, to kind of draw out what Jesus is getting at. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in the secret, in the hidden place, he will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This, then, is how you should pray. And actually, would you just pray this with me, this familiar prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this section ends with, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hmm. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, wow. Thanks, Peter God. Wow, it's so rare. I don't hear people reading Scripture together in public anymore. Um, that's one of the first verses I think most of us get trained in if you grew up in the church. Uh, and it's just ingrained in our bones. There's something about that, just us speaking the Word of God, the words of God together in public. And I want to do that more. I'm going to tangent, and I don't want to because we don't have time. So let's just dive in. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites. You'll remember that last week, Darren, he introduced us to the idea that the hypocrites is actually a technical term for actor. It had no common usage in Jesus' day as anything other than talking about people who were on stage acting. Jesus was the first person to bring it into common parlance, to bring it into common language where you'd use it to call someone else out. He was the first to do it. And what he's saying is, so when you pray, do not be like the actors. The pretenders who take on a role in their spiritual lives and pretend in the presence of God. Their focus is not on the Father, but it's on everyone else in the room, hoping to be seen in some holy light, not hoping to be seen in the eyes of their Father. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others truly, oh, this is, Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Hmm. How condemning and challenging. Because the benefit of that type of pretending prayer, the illusion of devotion, has the only pathetic reward of looking good in front of other people. That's it. It has zero power, no power, no benefit. It'll travel as far as the sound will carry, and then it'll just go flat. But if there is an outcome, if there is some outcome to that kind of acting prayer, it clearly is negative in Jesus' eyes. And it has an impact on our community, and we've all seen it. You have not had to be at a church long enough, any church, whether you grew up in it or not. Have any of you been in the room where you had something you felt to include in your prayer or speak out in prayer or just to pray over someone and you were too intimidated. You were afraid. Maybe you felt too uneducated, not spiritual enough, not wise enough, whatever it is. But because people have spoken with too many words, with too much verbosity, for the sake of being seen in a certain light that you have grown quiet and insecure. I'll tell you, I have studied in religion programs, right? Degrees in religion programs. And I get around some people and I'm like, man, I can't pray like that. I don't even know what you just said. Was that Latin? I have no idea. (laughs) Anyone who grew up Catholic is like, yes. (laughs) It's beautiful, don't get me wrong, but I'm not the Latin thing. Just when we just use word after word after word, and we're talking to every person in the room except to our Father who is desperate to hear us. And it costs the community. It costs people with wisdom who will not speak because they've been trained not to. That type of prayer costs us. 
And I mean, I get it, right? Like, I get it's hard in our day and age because perception is everything. It's hard to not let us see this as some public religious activity. But Jesus is inviting us to let it come not from what we'd like to be seen to be, but from who we really are. The rawness of what it means. And we'll get into that in a second. But I just want to say it is difficult in our day, and it's probably more than ever, because we are surrounded with virtue signaling at every level, religious, political, cultural. We're surrounded by people who are so hell-bent on having the right thing said in the right way. Everyone's listening to you with suspicion, but they're never hearing your meaning. So they jump to a thousand conclusions. And that's not even a political statement. That's just the reality that I see when I talk to someone, just waiting to interject, never hearing the heart. If we're going to be gracious, we have to be gracious with even how we perceive people's words. And yet we're so trained, we're so well-trained to take any word that's, uh, uh, did that mean this? Oh my gosh, are you saying you believe that? Oh wow, that's weird, I can't talk to you. Or call out, slam them down, right? She's saying that cannot be how we use our spiritual lives. That cannot be the way that we open ourselves to God with other people. That collective fear is, terri- is terrifying, but I don't want that to be a place at the garden, right? In this kind of world, we would often rather be perceived as people who are, who are just rather than people who actually are just. We would rather be perceived as people of prayer rather than being people soaked in God's presence. As Francis, there's a great quote from St. Francis of Assisi who said this hundreds of years ago, 400 years ago. He said, we can patiently accept not being good. We can do that. What we cannot bear is not being considered good, not appearing good. And in a day where our projected self, whether in public or online, is so mingled with who we actually are. I had this conversation with someone who's like, you know what? It really feels like this image that we present online somehow becomes our authenticity because we created the image, so that really must be our authentic self. And I was shocked by that reality. I've never thought of it. Of course. That's why we clamor for it. That's why we'd rather be publicly good than really have goodness in the inside. And he says, don't be like that. But when you go, into, when you do pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And I love this image. I love this image of Jesus, the fullness of God, right? The hypostasis, it says in Hebrews, the fullest image of who God is enfleshed. And he's saying, God's unseen. That's rhetorical irony if I've ever seen it. God himself standing before them saying, yeah, 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 this God that you pray to, he's unseen. And he's hinting at this reality that for the hypocrites, for those who use their spiritual, their, re- their religiousness, their spirituality to stand in front of and gain some kind of acclaim, for those people, God will be hidden to them. He will ne- they will never see that God. Because pretend when you pretend in prayer, it will only fall in the ears of a pretend God. The living God will remain hidden to you. He will be there going, oh, my heart aches because I know where you are, and yet, why are you pretending? As if we could hide. As if we could hide from this good and loving God, and it breaks his heart because he wants us blemishes and all, and he wants the depths of us. But we're so stuck pretending, and I think we have to learn to take our masks off. 
But in this idea of prayer, in this hidden place, then your father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Prayer is not about public acclaim, but about intimate relationship, intimate connection between you and your father. The real power of prayer is found between a father and his children. And I love this image because children, <laughs> my kids just came back from a weekend away with Grammy and Papa, my wife's parents. And when they come back, they're sugared up and they're exhausted because they went to bed at 11 o'clock. And I hear this. Despite that, I still hear they were perfect angels. And I'm like, yeah, honestly, they probably were. Because on the drive home, they melt down. Why is that? Because they're safest with us. I'm the safest place for my boy to throw a fit. He's not going to do that in front of other people. I'm, that's what God is, that's the heart of the Father saying, quit pretending. I know you're going to melt down right now. Why would you pretend it's not happening? That's not going to benefit you. It's just going to be a wall between us. That's a pretend prayer for a pretend God. And he's saying, I am living. Let's have real prayer. It's the same reason, right? Your spouse, your partner, your best friends know the worst parts of you. When you're safest with them, when there's the trust that covers all of it, you can be your ugliest and your best self. And hopefully you draw the best self even in the midst of your ugliness. That's this relationship that he's saying with our Father. Man, I'm just going to go so long. I'm sorry, guys. When you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And he's saying, it's not about mantras or mindless repetition. If it's not about pretending, then this is certainly not about formula. Don't think that if you just say the prayer in the right way or pray at this holy spot, you can twist God's will into your will. He's saying that's not how it's like. That's not how this God is. It's real. It's authentic. So don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you even ask him. This is not about new information for God. There is something deeper at work. This is about growing relationship, aligning with him, and about coming to a place of real need with someone who can be truly trusted with that need. And then in the midst of clearing all this baggage and laying this foundation, Jesus gives us this model for prayer that we just read. It's not a formula. It's not the words we need to pray every time we do pray, even though, honestly, some of us need to start there. We could pray a lot less prayers than the Lord's Prayer. But this is a doorway into our first lesson of what it means. And I just want to go through this because there are some staggering things that will that have changed my life. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first point, which we will blitz through these because at this point, the first point, prayer is a personal encounter with God in love. Prayer is a personal encounter with God in love. Don't get hung up on that word personal. A lot of Christians do. I don't mean it like it's your individual encounter. I mean it personal, like he is a person. When you pray, you are encountering a person. So don't think this is just about my emotions as I pray or the duty I have and I pray. And there's great, I'm all about duty in prayer because frankly, we're not a praying church. Not the garden, but the church broadly. We're not a praying church. We've lost it. We've forgotten. We haven't been trained well in it because we're so led by, you know, I don't really feel like praying today, so I'm not going to. That's not the authenticity that I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about the authenticity whose heart has been turned so much that you can say, I don't want to do it, and you're still going to commit to it. And you can bring all of that to him. But prayer is a personal encounter with God in love because until at some point your prayer and your heart have not been open to let your father say, I love you, then you've missed something. And if it's not that to start, if it's not this conversational friendship that Bill talked about at so many times, but in beautiful ways about prayer as a conversational, if you haven't opened up to hearing the Father say, I love you, and letting that begin to shape your reality, then you're going to miss the heart of prayer. We will miss the heart of prayer. And when it says, our Father who is in the heavens, it means I cannot limit him to this time, to this single idea, to this holy place. Where can I flee from his presence? If I go into the depths, he is there. I can go nowhere where this Father isn't lovingly chasing me down, longing to be with me. That is the beginning place of prayer. And and I know the word Father and the idea of Father is painful. I doubt there's a person in this room, even if you have the greatest dad in the world, you don't carry some wounds from that relationship. But I bet you there's a lot more people who when they first hear the word father, it's mostly cringe. It's mostly walls. It's mostly pain and disappointment. It's mostly longing. It's mostly, oh God, why? Why was that my story? And I wanna say, if that's you, I don't wanna force you to pray, but to even have your first experience of God with the father. What I wanna do is I wanna challenge you This is going to be really bold, I think, for some of you. But I think there's someone who, even as I said that, just something was opened up in you. Um, and if you would, I just want to bless you with an experience of the Father, even right now, in prayer, that will reset and begin to heal that. Um, so if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I know that is asking a lot in a room like this if that wound of the Father is so heavy that you don't even know how to begin to enter into this. All right, well, let's pray, team. If there's someone around you praying, would you just reach out your hand to them? Go ahead and keep your hands up if you would. Just all we're gonna do is extend a hand and I'm just gonna pray a blessing. Father, we bless, we bless the men and women in this room and the people who they represent. God, who's... Hmm, whose first response to the word Father is fear or anger or just disappointment or just confusion, God, I pray that you would right now, you would just put your arms around them. God, you would find a way in with your grace and your mercy. Hmm. Jesus, we pray healing. We pray you would begin even now healing that wound restoring it, God. Jesus, I ask that you would introduce them to your Father who is compassionate and good, who has nothing that we should be afraid of. Bless them now, Lord, in your name. Amen. Hmm. You know, just one more thing on, on that. You know, that's, that was really a, a rare thing in the ancient Near East. The idea of a tender and loving Father was an anomaly 
the only place it was really found was in the Jewish mindset. Fathers throughout the world were so demanding, overly demanding and stern and mean and dutiful that the idea of a tender father was really rare. But in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish world, there was actually a phrase, and it's, a, it's an idiom that they talked about, that every Jewish boy and girl has two mothers. So tender and so loving were Jewish fathers to their children that they were like mothers to the rest of the world. The only place where you can see that. That's the heart of the father that I'm talking about, that I'm hoping we get invited into. And we see in this place that prayer grounds us in reality. It grows us in truth. It teaches us about who God really is. It teaches us the way the world works through his kingdom and his will and his power. And it's beautiful and it's good, but it grounds us in truth of who he is and it grounds us in the truth of who we are. Prayer our intimacy with the Father will be limited by what we're willing to accept as true of God. If we think he's capricious or fickle or withholding or petty like we are, then we will not be able to come to him with our honest self. And Jesus, as we've already seen, is saying real prayer cannot be about pretending. Prayer cannot be a denial of reality. It is about coming to know what is, what's real of me, what's real of my circumstance, what's real of my feelings, yes, but also what's real of God. So in this way... The only ineffective prayer is one that is disingenuine, one that is dishonest. Prayer is ineffective when it doesn't honor what's really going on in you and in the world. And if we live in that space of pretend and don't get grounded in the reality of the world through God's lens, through his goodness and who we are in light of that, then we will never come to a place where we can genuinely be transformed and even genuinely acknowledge the things we need most, which is what the next section's about, right? We have these characters that ground us in God's goodness, his holy name, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth. Those three things of God, how different and distinct he is, despite our intimacy with him, he, was, he will be distinct. It's about his will and not my will. We are immediately met with three needs that we have. Bread or provision, forgiveness and deliverance. And only can we ask for these out of an honest place of self-awareness. And this is where we see that prayer begins to be about petition. It rec petition recognizes my own incompleteness. It recognizes my need that coming out of the truth of who we are and the reality of the world, that I could be petty and selfish. And all of my puny needs, I can bring them to God because if it's important to us, it's important to him. Let me say that again. If it's important to you, it's important to him. I used to, I remember mocking people who would like pray for parking spots, right? Like in the mall over Christmas. Friends who would always pray. And I'm like, what a waste of your prayers. And I realized, oh, what if that's the most important thing on my mind right now? Why wouldn't I bring that to him? And you know what? Even if it's pathetic or puny or tiny, God can do something with it because it's real. Way better than me sitting there going, I'm so holy that I would never pray for something, but Lord, can I have the lottery? Lord, can I have this spouse? That's a great thing to pray for, but don't, don't get hung up on things that you think you can manipulate and control God into by being pure or right or righteous or holy, right? Look at this language, though, because as soon as we start thinking this could be about my needs, we're quickly reminded that it's not about us. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts also as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one because genuine encounter with God will displace me as the center of my universe. Real growth means that I can begin to make room for others and at first that's God. And over time, other people, right? Real encounter with God will displace me as the center of my universe because as we bring our petitions honestly, we realize they're gathered together in this family. We all get to call him father. And my needs are never so far from my family's needs. And this way, prayer trains us in self-forgetfulness because all of my needs are inescapably tangled up with the needs of others. They're not separate. So we need to be trained in self-forgetfulness as we come to know who we really are and Jesus draws us into his heart and his character, then we begin to stop thinking about ourselves altogether. And that's not... Enneagram 2s love that, if you're an Enneagram 2. You're like, great, I don't need to think about myself. Just give away. I'm an Enneagram 2, so I know that feeling. This isn't that kind of prideful self-forgetfulness where you just give and give and give, that codependency. This is about knowing your place in the Father's love so well that other people take priority. Not that you deny the things that you gen genuinely need, but that you can offer them sacrificially. And you become a place where your wounds pour out in forgiveness and healing. And I love this word daily. Give us today our daily bread. It's this wonderful phrase because it has two meanings. It means, of course, it means sufficient for today. Give us today the bread sufficient for today. We'll trust you for tomorrow when it's tomorrow. But it also means give us a taste of tomorrow today. Give us a taste, sure, give us the bread that we need today, but give us a taste of your coming reign when all hungers will be satisfied. Yes, Lord, satisfy me today. Satisfy this community, meet their needs. But God, would you just give us a taste of the time when we won't hunger at all except for you? Jesus knows that satisfying a need in this moment will not last because man, humankind, will not live by bread alone. And when people try to live by bread alone, someone will always go hungry. When we try to live as if our need is the most important, someone will always go hungry. And that's the reality we see, <laughs> the inevitable result, where people have so much more than they could ever possibly need and there are people who have so much need, it's literally killing them. That only exists in a world where people try to live as if their need is the most important. And from the very beginning, in your Father's presence, he will begin to draw you away from that. And that is the idol of our time, comfort. But it will never leave us fully satisfied. Prayer always leaves us wanting more. Prayer will always leave us a little unsatisfied. And I know this is hard in a culture of triumphalism, in a culture of entitlement that says you can not only have your needs met, but have all your wants met. Just buy it. Just Amazon, Prime it, right? Whatever it is. It's available. If, honestly, if you Google the most obscure thing that you think you need, I guarantee you there's a company that does it. Or we'll make it for you in like a week and send it to you. That's a dangerous place to be because notice what he's saying. He's, don't give me what we want because God knows if he gave us what we really want in this broken state that we tend to exist in, 
it would be the worst thing for us. You want to know, maybe I've said this here before, I don't know. You want to know who gets everything that they want? An addict. An addict. And it ruins them. They get everything they want every day. He wants to train that out of us. He doesn't want us myopic. He doesn't want us, Lord, just my needs. We pray our needs. This is not about me. He wants us to hunger for him, for his nearness, his kingdom, his will, like starving people hunger for food. Not because God is cruel, but because he knows it's what's best for us. It's what we're made for. We're made to hunger for God far more than we're made to hunger for food, for bread. And the next sentence shows it because it's not where it ends, right? What are our needs? Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't let us get caught up in this tit-for-tat game that is so easy. Don't let us waste away in unforgiveness to the point where we can't receive forgiveness ourselves. Help us quit labeling and blaming and scapegoating. Teach us to lead with forgiveness that we might baptize this world, this unforgiving world, in your grace. That's what he's getting at. Let it stop with us, not in this community, not in his church. Unforgiveness will not reign in his church. So no more rivalries, no more tribes, no more words feeling feuds, nothing. And Father, lead us not into temptation. Which if we just stop there, what a prayer. Lead us not into temptation, considering the one whom we follow or at least we're curious about if you're here for the first time. You're curious at least about this person of Jesus. The one who we came here to follow is one who is tempted and tested beyond all measure. And we pray somehow, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But when we find ourselves in a place of temptation, deliver us from the work of the evil one. When we are tempted, let your outcome, Father, be the one that wins. When the enemy intends, what the enemy intends for evil, Father, will you somehow use it for good? Deliver us from our chains, even if our chains are self-imposed. And this is the reality that prayer, our final point, prayer prepares us for a life with God in a world opposed to God's kingdom. We live in a world that opposes this type of prayer because it opposes this type of God. So we will want you to be satisfied with every other thing. Meditation app, great. Spiritual retreat, great. But you never have to come to know your father as your father and be transformed by his goodness, to be transformed by the character and compassion that this God shows day in and day out. It's the only way that we will be prepared for a world. Remember what Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Right after telling his disciples he's going to die, right? I said this to, so that you have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. These are the least comforting words. Jesus has a way of doing that. Take heart in the midst of this horrible thing, but somehow it's meant to tell us that if the world is going in a direction that feels like it's not towards God's kingdom, we shouldn't be surprised. What we should do is be prepared to be people of the kingdom in a world opposed to it. So how do we hold the hope of the kingdom, this peace, especially in the face of pain and uncertainty? There are people who came in this morning with news in our prayer time. That is devastating. How do you hold hope in that? 
I think the only answer is we become a community of God's presence. We personally mark our days by God's presence. We get up. He is the first word. He is the first word on our lips before we wake up and get out of bed. He's the last words. He's the last words on our lips as we drift off to sleep. In every moment where something draws out of it, we let the Holy Spirit draw our attention to this loving Father. And then we become useful to him. Then we become these little pockets aligning with God's goodness and righteousness in a world opposed to him. Now I know that this sounds amazing. And I know that this life of prayer, that hopefully each of us is craving it. I mean, I'm feeling it even as I'm talking. I'm just hearing the Spirit say to me all the ways that I've not held up to the words I'm speaking right now in my exhaustion in the last month, where I've been satisfied with practices and duty just in this last month, and I've missed his heart. And I just even feel a conviction. How have I done that with my kids? Satisfied with the easy path when it gets hard. I'm not naive that this is not most people's common daily experience with prayer. I spent, I think, most of my Christian life from my teens into my late 20s just longing for this thing that never came. I had moments, I had beautiful moments of worship, beautiful moments of prayer, but never a sustained. I I hear these saints, these men and women who are older just talk about prayer being the thing that they wake up and crave and they go to bed craving to be near him. And if that's you, I I just don't want to put shame on you. But I feel like that's the word. I I actually think, for some of you, that's left you disenchanted. It's left you hmm, unsatisfied, at very least. Dissatisfied. But I think today's call of response is that that should be the beginning of your prayer life right now. Lord, I don't really want you but I want to want you. I don't trust that you're going to show up, but I want to trust that you'll show up. Lord, I don't hunger for you, but I long to hunger for you. Begin right there. If that's you right now, actually, as we go into ministry time, as we come into worship, actually, Faith, you can come up with the band um, because I know it's late. But I just want to say, if that's you today, begin with that prayer. Just open your hands as you come forward when we start doing ministry time and just say those words. Lord, I don't know if I want you, but I want to want you. Right? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I also think there are people who are genuinely desperate and genuinely hungry and they can't, they can't quiet it. It hasn't gone away. They, they're not disenchanted, but they're feeling, like I said at the beginning, they're feeling like on the outside. Like they're outsiders watching this life that some people are experiencing radical transformation right now, radical presence in in prayer. And they're like, Lord, why not me? And instead of moving into bitterness, instead of moving into a space where you become more and more distrusting or you just give up, right? Kierkegaard has this great line where he calls us, he calls these people gentle Christians, people who accept at every level that God is real and good and Jesus died for them. And Jesus longs to be in their life. The Spirit longs to fill them. But they've been so dissatisfied that 
They just don't think it's for them, the life of abundance, the life of God's nearness. And so he says they become gentle Christians, people with the right beliefs and none of the power, none of the intimacy of the Father. And I don't want that. Hmm. Hmm. And then, let me just add this. If that's you, if you are desperate to hear, if you're hungry and desperate to hear from God's voice, I want to challenge you in response today. As we come into ministry time and people come forward and respond, I want to challenge you to give away what you need. In the kingdom of God, that's a principle that I've come to know in my bones that when we need provision, we learn to be generous. When we need forgiveness, we speak generosity in our forgiveness to other people. We learn to forgive other people. And when we're desperate to hear the voice of God, we, we posture ourselves to speak God's blessing to other people. And I wouldn't be surprised if that act of obedience, the act of turning from your need and your unmet desire onto blessing another person this morning might become the doorway for God to actually meet your need and to meet you in this experience with another. And I think there's some people there for that as well. Hmm. Hmm. And then finally, I just want to say, I, I think there's, a, there's some people who are genuinely experiencing just this powerful renewal of God's presence and intimacy in their life. And there's risk and there's trust. And I want to, I want to encourage you guys, don't stop telling your story. Don't feel like, oh, I'm just the spiritual one doing it. Don't feel like there's shame. Communities need people who are the spearhead that poke through and God's blessing and abundance and provision come. And instead of judging you, for having spiritual encounters in front of us, we want to bless you and we want you to bless us with the abundance that God is giving you right now. So would you this morning be our prayer team as well? If that's you, right? Those are the three postures. You feel disenchanted maybe and you just need prayer, receive it. Walk into it. Open your hands to it. Start with that prayer. Lord, I don't know if I really trust you, but I want to. I don't know if I even want you to be near, but I want to want you. Lord, if you're, if you're feeling the hunger and it's feeling unmet, go bless your brothers and sisters. Be honest with where you're at and bless them. Just pray for them. Ask them what they need. Pray God's blessing. Open your ears to hear from the Spirit and then speak it out. And then finally, if you have just in this beautiful place of receiving God intimately, would you just bless this whole community with what God has given you? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.